Hi, I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, if we could get rid of all the rubbish that currently goes to landfill in a process that would generate electricity as a byproduct, shouldn't we be doing that? New Zealand's one of the highest generators of waste per person in the world, each of us throwing out a colossal 750 kilograms every year. Some Waikato builders are still sending leftover construction material to landfill. That's despite the council's plan to try and minimise and recycle waste. A case to try and stop a mega landfill development in North Auckland will be heard today in the Environment Court. Under my feet there are about 40 metres of compacted waste. And this is just Nelson and Tasman. There are landfill sites like this all over the country. It's decomposing, it's producing methane, and that all adds to global heating. What about a giant incinerator as a solution? After all, it's happening overseas. Australia's first thermal waste-to-energy facility, Avatas Energy, will divert 400,000 tonnes from landfill each year. They've been burning waste on a big scale overseas for decades. Some of the latest plants have even become tourist attractions. Well, now there is a proposal to build a waste-to-energy plant here in New Zealand. A waste-to-energy expert says a proposal for South Canterbury would be similar to plants operating in Europe. South Arden Resource Recovery Limited's proposal would see it truck more than 350,000 tonnes of waste to Waimati annually to burn and convert to energy. We want to make sure that in bringing this technology to New Zealand that we don't take any shortcuts and that we promote only the best. And, you know, we really have gone to the next level in terms of making sure that this allays any of the concerns that um, people may have around emissions, around human health. The small population of Waimati is not happy about Project Kia and say the proposal lacks detail. Why Waste Waimati spokesperson Robert Ireland says the application, which has twice been rejected for missing information, still does not fully detail how it will deal with toxic byproducts. Robert Ireland says there's also little information on how South Island Resource Recovery will take care of the tonne of hazardous sludge the plant's expected to produce daily. Close to 100 locals protested outside the company's public meeting today. Local opposition spokesperson Robert Ireland says locals feel like the proposal has been greenwashed. And now the whole thing's been booted upstairs. The Environment Minister has decided central government will take over processing a consent application for a waste-to-energy facility in Canterbury. The Minister, David Parker, says the project is of national significance and he's directed the Environmental Protection Authority to take over the application. Given it's the first of its kind in New Zealand and we don't have any regulations set up for this and it requires a lot of expertise, I imagine, very specific expertise to assess what are the risks and harms of this? Most recently, we've seen the Waimati District Council and Canterbury Regional Council ask the government to basically step in and say it's of national interest. So we think the government should basically take it over and set up a, a board to investigate it. And that's what we've just had this month. North and South magazine's South Island correspondent George Driver has been following this story and wrote about it in the magazine in August. I asked him, given that a 2018 survey by Waste Management found us to be the most wasteful country in the developed world, why we don't already have these plants. I think partly it's because we've had a lot of space. Before the Resource Management Act, there was lots of sort of unregulated tips. They're easy and cheap to do. 
things have tightened up with landfill more recently, but it's very expensive to build these plants. And they tend to be in sort of smaller European countries where space might be at a premium and where the heat from it can be used to displace coal or can be sort of central heating as well, as used a lot in Scandinavia, sort of heat. Hundreds of thousands of homes are heated from burning rubbish as well as generating power. I think partly it's a, a cultural thing, partly our landscape, partly economics. Why don't companies like Waste Management seem very keen on it? I mean, sort of saying that if it was a good thing, they would have done it themselves? Yes, yeah, so Waste Management, until last year, was owned by a Chinese company that operates, I think, a dozen waste-to-energy plants in China. They say they investigated building a waste-to-energy plant here a few years ago and found it wasn't economically viable. Overseas, there have been subsidies for waste-to-energy plants as a way to offset coal power. And if there's been resistance to, to building new landfills, it's been seen as a more environmentally friendly alternative. They say without these subsidies here and the volumes required hasn't made it make economic sense. Well, yeah, because on one hand, we produce too much rubbish, so we need to do something about it. And on the other hand, we don't produce enough rubbish for a solution like this. The other side is the, the companies building it to make money. They're taking the risk, believing they've got this amount of rubbish. It's hard to verify if, if they do have the rubbish or not. And if they didn't have the rubbish, it seems like a very illogical thing to be doing. But it's, yeah, it's still a bit of a mystery. <laughs> but our abundance of landfill space is changing. Waste worth $21 million a year used to be sent to China for recycling before a Chinese environmental crackdown came into effect in January 2018. And part of the government's reaction was to rethink how we manage waste. Among the changes is that all district and city councils must provide recycling collection to urban households by 2027 and provide food scraps collection by 2030. It's estimated that would divert an extra 83,000 tonnes of food waste and 53,000 tonnes of recycling from landfill annually. And it's municipal waste that's needed to power the type of waste-to-energy plants that South Island Resource Recovery Limited, or CIRL, proposes for Waimati. So this is burning, I think they're saying roughly 50% construction waste and 50% municipal rubbish, stuff that's collected on your curbside or from businesses. It's a bit more indiscriminate than some of the other forms, and it's burning it to basically rather than using coal in a coal-fired power station to, to boil water to drive a, a generator, you burn rubbish. Okay, but... You know, a generation ago, we all used to have a, a little incinerator at the bottom of our backyard, and we had to stop doing that because of the smoke. There's got to be surely some negative outputs other than electricity here. So these have been associated with health effects in the past overseas. They're very popular in Europe, and they have been used in parts of the States. The big issue has been dioxins, which is a sort of a chemical that takes a very, very long time to break down. It can accumulate in your body. It can accumulate in animals in the food chain. It was sort of a bit more relaxed uh, how these things were regulated in the past. So there are risks, but in theory, modern technology is able to filter out basically a lot of the things that would give people concern. A lot of the chemicals can be filtered out by modern treatments of the smoke that comes out. You want to make sure it's monitored well and you have the regulations in place. And then in theory, it could be fine in terms of the smoke it produces. But there are risks. 
some of those risks are only just being discovered. Internationally, some countries that have built these plants are having second thoughts. For example, Denmark, which is Europe's top waste burner, is decommissioning seven of its incinerators. In England, there have been protests over plans to expand an incinerator in suburban London. Campaigners are making plenty of noise to put pressure on the North London Waste Authority to find climate-friendly alternatives to incineration and stop the Edmonton expansion. They argue that the development contradicts the government's climate pledges. The wards immediately downwind from the incinerator have unusually high infant mortality rates. Is it sort of too easy to say, yes, let's build a big uh, plant that will burn all our rubbish? instead of really getting people on an individual basis to have the mentality of not creating so much rubbish? One of the big criticisms, yeah, is the the feed the beast um, argument that once you build them, you have to keep feeding them with this amount of waste for 20 or 30 years. Where they've been very popular in Scandinavia, some countries have began importing rubbish from the UK and other parts of Europe to keep feeding the beast, to keep these things burning rubbish because they've built so many of them. In parts of the UK, they've had moratoriums on building more of them after there's been a sort of a building boom, basically, of incinerators because they don't want to be locked into <laughs> keeping on feeding these things for decades to come. We could take the whole Pacific's rubbish. There is an issue on Pacific Islands with getting rid of landfill. Yeah, so... Some have suspected that's how Cyril will help source their 350,000 tonnes of rubbish. They've said they will never import rubbish and have never looked at it. But when they were investigating a plant on the West Coast, they one of their directors did say that was why they had chosen Westport, because it's a port and they could import rubbish from around the Pacific. So Waimati's not too far from Timaru, a major port. Some suspect that might be something that could happen in future. The company says it won't. Is it a good idea or not? I guess that's another question. <laughs> that's one of the big criticisms, and I think one of the reasons why perhaps they haven't been looked at here, because they require the amount of rubbish all of the time. They run 24-7. The boilers need to be running all the time to make it operate efficiently. So... If you need 300,000 tonnes of rubbish every year for the next 30 years, overseas they can lock councils into contracts, which mean they have to provide a minimum amount of rubbish. It creates a disincentive for for you looking to minimise the rubbish you're making if you're already locked into providing an amount of rubbish that might be quite large. Yeah, and I think also, hasn't the government committed to a sort of a circular approach to rubbish that we'll recycle as much as we can while trying to reduce it? And this would appear to be counterintuitive to that. Yeah, some people say, yeah, if our plan is to reduce rubbish significantly, those building the plants point out that our rubbish has increased an enormous amount over the last sort of decade or so, and that's since we passed an act to reduce our waste. So even if we make best efforts, they say, and population keeps on growing, we'll still have a lot of rubbish to deal with. On the other hand, zero waste advocates say if you have an easy way to dispose of it like an incinerator, it sort of reduces the incentives for more innovation to to reduce rubbish. We saw this with recycling when China stopped taking the world's recycling, basically. It caused a a major crisis worldwide and in New Zealand. But in the years since, there's been more investment for local solutions to deal with recycling. Out of that need comes sort of innovation. 
Cyril's care plant is not the first time such a proposal's been floated here. A predecessor, Renew Energy, tried to get various West Coast councils to look at a waste-to-energy plant, in part to burn waste coal. But Renew's founder and CEO was investigated for, then convicted of, fraud. And that was enough for the Provincial Growth Fund to pull a $350,000 grant for a feasibility study. There was lots of public opposition and it all unravelled in a somewhat dodgy way, which George Driver's written about in his North and South article. Then in 2021, the plan sprung up again on the other side of the Southern Alps with a different company that had the same basic partners. Renew Energy is a 40% owner of Cyril, the balance owned by Chinese interests. A lot of people wonder why, why, Matty? Why would you put it in this district that has 7,000 people? Usually you'd put it sort of maybe closer to Christchurch where there's a lot of waste. Um, so they suspect that maybe they've been targeting smaller councils that might have less, less resistance to it. On the other hand, Cyril, the company building it, say this is a, a location that's in between a lot of centres in between Dunedin, in between Christchurch, Queenstown, where they think they'll get a lot of this rubbish from. The issue is the, the councils there decide where the rubbish goes that the waste management companies collect. And the councils, they seem resistant to send it to an incinerator. The companies that collect the rubbish don't seem to be in favour of them either. So it's not quite clear at the moment where they're going to get this 365,000 tonnes of rubbish they'll need every year. George's question is echoed by Jim Jones, a professor of chemical and bioprocess engineering at Massey University. Why, why, Matty? I mean, they're this, basically the smallest council in New Zealand, aren't they, in terms of um, number of people? It, do, it does seem a little odd. He says if the plant gets approval, strong regulation is key. Because we don't have a plant like this, we don't have the rules and you know regulations around their operation. And uh, it's almost a chicken and egg scenario, isn't it? You know, um, to have the experience of knowing what to do, you almost need to have a plant. Uh, but then that plant would come in with uh, no, <laughs> a lot less uh, regulation around it. He says one of the big questions is how waste to energy plants can be held to account if things go wrong, like if squeaky clean operations are secretly not so squeaky clean. You know, in New Zealand, you just need to go past some stacks out there and you look at them and there's a billowy cloud coming out of the stack. And if that billowy cloud completely disappears, that is steam. That's fine. Nobody's worried about steam. But if you've got this cloud that comes out where there's a slick that keeps on going, that's not okay. Because in in Europe, all you can see at the top of a stack is a shimmer, you know, in Germany, for example, of heat, right? You cannot see anything else. And that'll be because they're continuously monitored. The companies are continuously, every second or the day, held to account for what comes out of their stacks. And in New Zealand, if we, you know, we don't have the, as far as I understand, this this regulation to be continuously monitored. They'll be checked every now and then, but on the day that the checking happens, uh, it's it's too easy to say, okay, let's turn down the operation today so that our, you know, our boiler system's working within spec. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and this again is where Waimati uh, residents don't trust the monitoring systems because ECAN's not doing a great job already of monitoring other pollution type situations. No. No, so that goes both ways, isn't it? Then it's not they're not trusting the, the company, they're not trusting the authorities who is there to police them. If you have a process plant where things suddenly go wrong, you have a shutdown 
procedure, right? And that these limits are effectively fallbacks that they have to have to reduce from and then close down the process, uh, which would really sharpen the investors' minds to making sure that they've got everything in place that they need. I mean, on the note, this process looks good, you know, on uh, from what I've seen. On paper. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The design looks good. Although, you know, I mean, if I was really going to do a proper investigation of it, you know, it should take me quite some time. I would want the translations uh, of the bits that are not in English, you know. So from the documents not written in Mandarin, Professor Jones describes how the Waimati process will work. So they truck in waste, they effectively incinerate that and turn all the biological material into gas, basically. And I I was looking at what they expect to put into the process, which is quite wide ranging, I might say. So they've just got things like recycled paper and cardboard, compostable green waste, non-compostable green waste. Then they've got things called recyclable plastics, which they put in, soft plastics, uh, clothing and textiles, timber, there'll be construction timber, e-waste, ferrous metals, non-ferrous metals, uh, you know, general uh, household food waste, nappy sanitary waste, that kind of thing. They're trying to not put in hazardous waste, but they've got a, you know, noted that obviously some would sneak through, I imagine, and batteries and things like that. And really what we need is a discussion about these things because the hazards that you get out of a process are all related to the hazardous materials you put into the process. So pretty much everything tipped off the back of a truck and burned. So in the combustion, you produce a lot of heat. The hot gases go past pipes. Those pipes have got water in them. The water turns into steam. So the st- the steam loop, the, the water, goes around and around a loop. So it makes steam. That steam is at high pressure. That goes through turbines, which rotate. And those turbines, um, using through an alternator, generate electricity. That steam condenses effectively on the far side because the energy is taken out of it. And then it goes back around the loop. So that's a closed loop, a boiler to steam turbine loop. So that, that that's how the electricity is generated. And then, of course, you end up with a solids that, you know, needs to be moved on from the plant. So let, let's call that uh, ash. And that ash needs to go somewhere, if not to a landfill. Sometimes the idea is they just go to the landfill, which is a much, much reduced volume on what would have gone to landfill. But you can do different things. And this Kia plant, I sort of had a look at the process description and they're sort of turning that into a plasma process to make um, a vitrified ash. Um, So a glassy material that won't won't leach or go anywhere. That I understand is is can be used as a filler. Um, effectively, you're making what would be an aggregate that would go in concrete, for example. Okay, so you've got a system that burns rubbish, produces electricity. What's not to love? Well, this is the interesting thing, um, but they become a large plant that needs feeding. So the operators of the plant are then starting to look around for what is it that we can put into the plant to keep feeding it. And so people who are more interested in ensuring that we're recycling things rather than just combusting them, that issue becomes that, oh, it's it's a place it can go. I mean, you right. know, instead of the landfill, it's now the, the next place things can go and it can just be burnt. There's another drawback of putting a lot of everything into an incinerator how they predict what what's coming out is difficult when you don't always know what you've got going into the process. If you've got hazardous materials going in, you need extremely good scrubbing systems to make sure that they don't come out the other end. So yes, you do have issues. 
you know, for example, e-waste, you know, some of these have fire retardants in them, you know, just which is part of the design of them. And those fire retardants can form these dibenzodioxins. You know, if you've probably heard of dioxins, dibenzofurans. If you put in construction timber that's been CCA treated, so all the poles that you would have on houses that are built on hillsides, you know, that go into the ground, fence posts that are used in the wine industry, are all copper, chromium, arsenic treated. If you have any of that going into the front end of the process and you're combusting it, you know, you're taking it up to high temperatures, the arsenic oxide becomes volatile and that is toxic, for example. So, so these processes have to be very, very careful of how they, uh, what they select to put in. Yeah. Right. And is Project Kia's technology good enough to scrub this to a degree that there would be no downstream dangers? The technology looks, at first glance, pretty robust. They've got all the right sort of processing equipment in place to do the thermal side of it. And it looks like the effectively, I'll call it in general words, scrubbing system, the cleanup system look, looks effective as well. But I mean, you know, I mean, I've just downloaded one or two of the things on the uh, on the website yeah. to, from the resource consents. But Jim Jones says if we're going to introduce waste to energy systems, we should be looking at a fuel source or what they call feedstock that's entirely organic, like forestry slash or food waste. The electricity produced would then be classed as renewable. The plant being proposed for Waimati is not. But when you've got these mixed, these municipal solids waste streams uh, that currently uh, go to landfill because it's the the repository for them, and those landfills are charging a, a gate fee, there is an opportunity for the private industry, I guess, to come in underneath and say, ah, well, if we took that gate fee or a fraction of that gate fee, that gives us a margin with which we can do some processing. So so that's what's happening. There's an opportunity here, and so they're doing it. And George Driver's pleased that the decision on the plant is now in the hands of the Environmental Protection Authority. With the government having an investigation now, hopefully that will help clear up the risks and benefits and whether regulations can sufficiently reduce those risks to make it worthwhile or perhaps if you think it will be such a risk to our recycling and progress towards being zero waste, they'll be in a position to to make a call on that, depending on who our government will be then. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Phil Benge and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Mark Jennings. Thanks to George Driver and Professor Jim Jones. Mā te wā.